You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. I'm always so grateful to gather like this, to gather together like this, in part because we believe that our, our corporate worship together strengthens not only our connection to one another, which it does, but also strengthens our, our shared uh, ownership of this mission that we have together to proclaim our faith, that we are encouraged and built up in times like this. So that just in a few minutes, when we go back out into the places that God's called us, um, we, we remember what we've been called to. So we're grateful to gather this morning. Like I said, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week at the park, we kicked off a, a series this fall looking at Paul's two letters to the church in Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians. Um, and we're calling this series over these next 10 or so weeks, Strength for Today and Bright Hope for Tomorrow, which is just a blatant ripoff of the line from the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Uh, we make no bones about completely stealing that line from that uh, hymn. The reason for that title is that the Apostle Paul wrote these two letters to encourage a church in this city, a small young, passionate church under duress, under persecution. And he's encouraging them, here's how to live faithful lives in obedience to Jesus with strength and with courage, because they need that, and to have hope in, an, in a glorious eternal future, because life is hard. And so they would need strength for today and hope for tomorrow. So today we're looking at chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. We're just going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning as our, as our primary text. And in this section, Paul is making the case that all of the work to bring the gospel to them is worth it. It's worth the hardship. Despite the difficulty and the persecution, despite the fact that Paul only had a short time, probably about three weeks of time with this church, the fact that he might not ever see them again in person, and despite the fact that the difficulties that they are currently experiencing are probably only going to get worse, Paul says, our labor among you was not in vain. Basically saying, it was worth it. Which I think presses on us a little bit. It identifies in us a legitimate fear. See, when things get hard in our lives, we tend to ask the same question of ourselves. Is this worth it? Is it worth the extra effort? Is it worth the extra hardship? Is it, is it worth, like, what's the return on investment here? And when we stand at the end of our lives, at least I think this is true of us, when we stand at the end of our lives, we don't want to look back at the account of all that we've done. And the, in, the, in the box or in the account of, like, not-so-important things, it's full of stuff. But in the box of, like, really important eternal things, we're like... I didn't put a lot into that bucket. We fear not depositing anything of any lasting significance. And I'm not saying we need to go out and change the world with everything that we do, but, but that life has purpose. We want to know that what we do, how we live, the hardships that we endure, we want to know that they're worth something eternally. 
is obedience to God in the, in the little things, in the day-to-day things, is it worth it? Is the way we parent our children worth it? Is, is our integrity on small things that people might not ever see, is it worth it? On top of that, we wonder sometimes if the harder things that we face are worth it, especially the challenges we might face for the sake of our faith in Jesus or our adherence to his word. We do fear, I think, a life lived in vain. And Paul addresses this head on in this passage. He says straight up, our work wasn't in vain. This life, this calling, Paul says, is worth it because... Paul says, we had boldness in our God. The answer to the question of how not to live a life of vanity or a life of insignificance is what Paul calls boldness in our God. So we're going to read our text today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the, the scripture for us today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> for you yourselves know, brothers... That our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, for God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. If you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, as a bit of an illustration, let me ask you a question. When you were a kid, and maybe some of you in the room, you are kids, so feel free to answer if you're currently a kid or you think back to when you were a kid. And you were asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? If I were to ask you that right now, put yourself either back as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up, or you're now in the room and you feel confident to answer me, I'll take some answers, this is participation, what do you want to be when you grow up? What were some of your answers or are some of your answers? Not all at once, though. Mailman. Really? You're like, I want to be a mailman. That's awesome. Who else? A mom? You wanted to be a paleontologist, baseball player? Like you watched Jurassic Park as a kid, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> right? A study I read this week from 2019 asked 3,000 kids, ages 8 to 12, to choose from 
between five professions. They only gave them five rather than an indefinite amount of what they wanted to be when they grew up. Here's the five that they were given as part of this survey. Astronaut, musician, professional athlete, teacher, or YouTuber. Do you want to know the results? Yeah, exactly. The top voter was, you guessed it, a professional YouTube star. Then teacher, then professional athlete, then musician, and at the very bottom, astronaut. At least according to this survey. So as a kid, when I wanted to go to space camp, I was like, if I was a kid now, there'd be less competition. Because when I was a kid, it was like, everyone wanted to be an astronaut or a doctor. Astronaut. I read another survey from 2019 this week that asked 2,000 adults in the U.S. what they wanted to be when, what, when they grew up, like when they were kids, what they wanted to be, and then where they were now, what they were doing now. And 67% of adults said they are not doing their childhood dream. You're probably not a mailman. I mean, you could be. There's still time. Paleontologist, maybe. Baseball player, sorry. You and I are in the same boat. That's not happening. Not professionally, at least. Now, this isn't meant to be a TED Talk about pursuing your dreams and you go be that baseball player and be that mailman. This is not what this is about. But I want to lean in a little bit to this question we ask ourselves a thousand times a day when we're choosing how to spend our time or are we going to go to the gym or aren't we? Or what classes should we take? Or should I look at this promotion? A thousand times each day in big and small things, we're asking this. Is this, whatever it is that we're doing or maybe pursuing, is this, fill in the blank, is this worth it? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the money? Is it worth the time? Is it worth the sore muscles? Is it worth the sacrifice? Does it get me where I want to go? And in the case of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's preemptively giving an answer to the question that he's essentially being asked. Hey, all the stuff you're going through, it's really, it looks really hard. Is that even worth it, Paul? And he's saying, it is worth it. The hardship that he's faced, the, the persecution he's endured for the sake of Jesus, the, the prison time, the beatings, the mocking, the lies, it is worth it. And I think Paul is saying, as an example to others and an example to us, of the value the worthiness, if you will, of this life of faith in Jesus. The answer to the question of how not to live a life of vanity and insignificance, but a life of significance and purpose is marked by what Paul says in verse 2, that we had boldness in our God. Now, this, this text doesn't neatly break up into, into nice little points, but, but a couple of things I see... If boldness in God is needed for endurance and to, in a sense, answer the question of, is life worth it? Is this kind of life worth it? All of this is worth it, Paul says. Then in these 12 verses, we see these kind of marks of what boldness in our God, this language Paul uses, what it actually looks like. And I see two big marks that Paul kind of leans on when he says that. One, Paul is confident in God's call in his life. And Paul's life shows something. It shows the fruit of cultivated faithfulness. Confidence in God's call and cultivated faithfulness. So let's work through this together. Paul starts out verse 1. He says, You know, brothers, that are coming to you, the, the hardships that we endured to get to you, and the things that we experienced when we were with you were not in vain. He just opens with that assertion. 
bringing the gospel to you is worth it. Verse 2, he says, we had already been shamefully treated at Philippi. Now, we don't find out in Thessalonians what happened at Philippi. We have to go back to Acts chapter 16. And in Acts 16 tells us that Paul and Silas, while in Philippi, sharing the gospel, come into contact with a slave girl who had been oppressed and taken over, if you will, by some kind of demonic force that was giving her some kind of fortune-telling ability of sorts. And it was being used by her slave owners as a sideshow. They were making money off this girl's oppression. And Paul, having none of that, casts the demon out of this girl, frees her from her demonic oppression. But what that does is it, it basically ends the cash cow for the slave owners who were profiting off of her tragedy. They get upset, obviously. Have Paul and Silas hauled before the authorities. They are beaten with sticks and thrown in prison. I think that qualifies as what happened to us in Philippi was shameful. If you keep reading in Acts 16, you'll read that Paul and Silas were singing while in prison. After getting beaten, thrown in jail, in the middle of the night, they are singing praise to God. And what happens is an earthquake shakes the prison while they're singing. And the chains that are likely chaining them to the wall and the the hinges on the doors, those things come loose across the prison. And the jailer who's responsible to make sure that the prisoners stay in their cells comes running in, recognizing that the doors now are all propped open. And he's like, that's it. I've, I've lost my job. And in the honor culture of the day, his option was to take his own life. And so he pulls out his sword to take his own life. And Paul says, don't, don't do that. We're still here. Let me tell you about this Jesus who's worthy of this kind of suffering. And that jailer gets saved. He heard the gospel that night. Verse 2 continues. Paul says that many treated us shamefully, but we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That is the first uh, mark of boldness in our God. It's this confidence in God's calling. Now this word boldness, when we see it in the New Testament, in the New Testament translated into English, it means to have courage. And in nearly every instance that I found in the New Testament where this word, Greek word, is used like this, translated as boldness, in almost every instance that I could find, it is always tied to speaking and preaching and proclaiming. It's always tied to the declaration of what? The gospel of God. Look at verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted, I love that word entrusted, entrusted with the gospel, Paul says, so we speak. Now for us, a simple definition of what we mean when we say gospel is this. It's more than this, but it's not less than. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to secure forgiveness and eternal life for all who repent and believe in him. This message that we've believed, that God has entrusted to us this message, so we declare it to you in the midst of much conflict. Because we have confidence not only in the gospel, although the gospel is the power of God to all who believe, amen, we have confidence in the power of the gospel 
because it is the power of God for all who believe, and we have confidence in the God of this gospel. Look at the end of the passage, verse 12. Paul says, we exhorted, we, we challenged you, we, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, get this, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God calls you. God called us to himself through the gospel. God approves us. He entrusts us with the gospel. And then we declare that gospel to you. And you believe by faith. And through this, God calls you and approves you and entrusts you with the gospel. Do you see the pattern? Paul's boldness in God keeps his life and the hardships that he endures from becoming meaningless. Because it has brought about in Paul gospel change. It's not just a willingness to persevere like he can just hang on. But as Acts 16 points out, Paul and Silas are are praising God. They're singing songs of thanksgiving and praise in prison. So it's endurance with joy. It's the gospel that has brought about this change in Paul so that he's willing and able not just to hang on, but look forward with joy to what's in front of him. This boldness, this confidence produces something here in Paul. See, Paul knows who he is and he he knows to whom he belongs. And this boldness also brings about gospel change in the lives of others. We read about it last week. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, that the Thessalonians heard the gospel and turned away from idols to serve the living God. They believed in Jesus. And what is more significant from an eternal perspective than leading people towards Christ Jesus and his kingdom? Now, what's interesting is Paul doesn't say We know that our coming to you was not in vain because you turned from idols to serve the living God. He he doesn't use the Thessalonians' faith as the example of what makes his effort worthwhile. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I think Paul is grateful to God for his faith. He spent the entire first chapter talking about how thankful he was. But he doesn't say that here. Rather, Paul's uh, example, if you will, of of confidence, of boldness, is he's he's talking about, here's how we went about our business when we were with you. Here's how we showed faithfulness to God while we were with you. And so Paul starts to build a little bit of a defense. I don't know if you, as you were reading this, if that stood out to you. Paul focuses on the things that would take away from the authenticity and the integrity of his message. All the things that could be used as ammunition to discredit not only him, but also discredit the gospel. See, Paul says, we've been faithful to bring you the gospel as given to us, not for our sake, but so that you might know the living God. He's confident in his calling, and he's showing that he's been faithful to carry out that calling. That's the first thing. Paul is confident in saying, clearly we were here because God has called us to be here. and We're going to be faithful to do that no matter what happens. That's the first mark of What I think boldness in our God looks like is a confidence in the calling of God. And the second one is this. Paul has now, he's now showing us that what's been cultivated in him is faithfulness. 
I use this word cultivated for two reasons. One, it starts with a C like the word confidence, and it's easy for people like me to remember two words that start with the same letter. Alliteration is good. But more than that, more than just the the remembering help, cultivation has a connotation of of work and intentionality. It's it's an agriculture term, right? You got to do something. It's, It's working the ground to prepare it. Paul is saying here, we've been obedient to the call of God to preach the gospel. We've fought to maintain our identity in Christ in the midst of persecution. We've cultivated the ground of our souls so that the gospel that has come to us has now taken root and it's producing in us obedience to God. It's producing in us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's producing these things in us, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, by the way, as our grounds are now, the ground of our souls is ready and, and prepped to grow. It's the fruit of the Spirit at work in us. And I think it's right. At first reading, we read through this, and Paul is giving a defense of the work that they've done. And there are a couple of reasons for this defense. One of them is there are lots of people out there who don't like Paul. That's clear from the book of Acts, chapter 16. It's clear from what happens to the, uh, Paul when he's in Thessalonica and gets literally driven out of town by a mob. And so there's people who are Their mission is to discredit Paul. Clearly he had enemies. And so you can hear in his language the things that he's likely being accused of. These are the talking points being distributed to say, hey, when Paul comes to your town, say these things. That he's in error. He's just wrong. That he's attempting to deceive. Fake news. Paul's fake news. Right? That the ministry is just a pretext for greed. He's just after money. Or maybe that he's seeking popularity and fame. These are things that Paul addresses. So on one hand, he's countering with, he says this a couple times, clearly you, you know our motives. You're like, you're witnesses to the truth of this, right? And that's the first thing. But on the other hand, Paul's not, nearly, not only defending himself, but he's giving the Thessalonians a, a tool, if you will, to, to bolster their faith. Because it's not just about Paul's integrity, They're not just attacking Paul. They're seeking to attack the Thessalonians and their young faith. They're not just trying to discredit Paul. They're trying to discredit the Thessalonians. Because remember, Paul's not there anymore. He's writing from a distance. And so you can imagine that as Paul is gone, those who are against the gospel, enemies of God, enemies of the gospel, are now coming in to look at the Thessalonians in the face and go like, You don't really believe that guy, right? You don't really believe the things he was saying? And so they attempt to discredit the gospel by by discrediting the one who brought it to them, making them feel foolish for believing it. You're foolish for thinking that what he said was was true. So if they can discredit the messenger, they can discredit the message. Kind of like modern-day political discourse. right? They don't have to engage with Paul's argument. They don't have to posit a better statement. They just have to convince people that Paul is a terrible person from a terrible town with terrible ideas, and maybe then they won't listen to anything he has to say. The Thessalonians are in danger of being shamed into walking away from their faith. Again, sounds a little bit like modern social and political discourse, right? 
will just shame people into thinking they're foolish. So while part of this, I think, is a defense, Paul's giving a defense, I think he's also telling the Thessalonians something. He's making a case for them. This is what boldness looks like for you. This is how you pursue obedience to the calling of the gospel, to hold on to your identity as a Christian. This is how you cultivate faithfulness to God. And inside of this cultivating faithfulness, Paul is essentially saying, this is what boldness in God looks like lived out among you. And he highlights, I've grouped them into three things that I see here in this second section. Paul highlights three things. That faithfulness cultivated looks like this. It's free from the praise of men. It is free from the love of comfort. And it is freely given of self. Free from the praise of men, free from the love of comfort, and freely giving of oneself. And this is where I think we can draw some really significant personal application for us. I know the last couple of Sundays have been shorter messages. This one is not. So take a deep breath. Now we get at it, okay? Free from the praise of men. Verse 3. Paul says, Our appeal doesn't come from impurity or an attempt to deceive. This isn't a bait and switch. We're not trying to fool you into the kingdom, Paul says. Our goal is not to trick you. We proclaim the gospel clearly and honestly. Verse 4, he straight up says it, not to please man, but to please God. Flat out. We know our message isn't popular. Clearly, because it gets us uh, not just canceled, we get beaten and thrown in in prison. Not Facebook jail, real jail. Clearly, we hold God's opinion of us in higher regard than that of the popular culture around us. Paul's saying, this might be the hardest, by the way, addiction to be free from for us, brothers and sisters. This free from the praise of men is a terribly difficult addiction to be free of. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Verse 5, he says, not with words of flattery. That is, we didn't come just to wow and impress you. Ooh, look how smart we are. No fluff, just substance. In verse 6, not seeking glory from people. We weren't trying to gain popularity or status or notoriety. That was not our aim. All these are examples of Paul saying, we are free from the praise of men. We are not governed by what other people think about us. Free from the love of comfort. Look at verse 5. Paul says, we didn't come... It's not a pretext for greed. Basically, we're not after money. Verse 6, we could have, he says, asked you to take care of us. We are apostles, after all, sent by God. It's, it's, a, it's a reasonable expectation that if we come to give you this good gift, that you'd maybe provide housing or provide some meals, maybe take up an offering. He says, but we didn't do that because we didn't want to burden you or confuse the message. We didn't want to give you a bad reason to reject what we had to say. Verse 9, Paul says, we worked day and night so that we wouldn't be a burden. We pulled our own weight. We provided for ourselves so that there'd be no question as to the integrity of what we were saying. Free from the love of comfort, Paul says. And then look how this boldness expressed itself with these Thessalonians who Paul reached out to. Verse 7, Paul says, we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for and nourishing her children with compassion and tenderness. Verses 11 and 12, Paul says, we were like a a father to you. We exhorted you and encouraged you. We we built you up. We we taught you the things you needed to know. I, I love that 
that picture that Paul uses of mother and father language. And I don't always like to use uh, parenting analogies um, because not everyone in the room is a parent, but just go with me for a second. When I was younger, I was a kid, a teenager, young adult, just the sight of someone getting sick or the thought of it, or you heard someone over there like, and you're like, "Mm, no, right? Maybe that's you, very sensitive to the realities of other people's stomach issues, right? And when you become a parent, like, all bets are off. Like, you're the one gathering the sheets in the middle of the night that have been totally destroyed at 2 a.m., and you're like, you know? But you're doing that. You're in there, like, helping them hold the bucket. I'm sorry if I'm getting a little graphic. Some of you are already like, whoa, whoa. But the picture there is, what do you do when you're a parent? You're in it. You're, you're, you're self-sacrificially, you're in. You're, you're in the, the grossness and you're, you're caring for and you're tender and you're gentle and you're providing for, right? And I love the picture of both the mother and the father that Paul says, we were like both of these with you. We, we picked you up when you fell down. We encouraged you. We trained you with the things you needed, right? We, we taught you what you needed to know. It's this, this familial love and compassion and connectedness that Paul says, this has come from the gospel at work in us to you. And then verse 8, he says, one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament, so being affectionately desirous of you, Paul says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you've become very dear to us. I love that language. Now, with those who are enemies of God and enemies of Paul, he's often very direct. I mean, he calls them out by name and he's like, hey, these guys, don't talk to those guys. They're bad news. But with all those who, who, are, who are on their way into the kingdom, Paul stands with wide open arms and freely gives of himself to say, come, I will do whatever it takes to welcome you on your way into the kingdom. Wide open. Paul says, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel. The best thing we can give you is the gospel. And on top of that, we're willing to give it to you in the context of just sharing with you our whole lives. Free from the praise of men, free from the love of comfort, and freely giving of self. This is the fruit of boldness in God that has been cultivated, I think, in the life of the Apostle Paul. And he's encouraging to be cultivated in the lives of these Thessalonian sisters and brothers. Because as much as he's making a defense for himself, like, hey, we came to you with good motives and we've done good uh, work among you. This has been the Lord's work. It's good. As much as he's doing that, because he doesn't want people to discredit the message, I think more significantly... Paul is setting the stage for believers in Thessalonica and for us who read it now to look at him as an example. If we're going to receive this, like the Thessalonians did, we're sitting in the room, Paul sends his letter and says, hey, I want to talk to you, church. And we go, okay, Paul, let us know what you got. Paul would write it about three years later in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11. Paul would say to the church in Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And now that might sound a little uh, arrogant, like, whoa, really, Paul? You think we should follow you? And Paul's like, no, no. I think what I'm proving here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is it's not about me. I've been called by God 
proclaim this message, and I want you to follow me in doing so. And so I think that's what Paul's saying here a little bit. He's looking at the Thessalonians metaphorically in the face, and he's going, I know it's hard. I know they're going to throw everything at you. They're going to falsely accuse you. They're going to demean you. They're going to assassinate your character. They're going to call you a fool and a liar. They're going to manipulate your words and twist them. They might even pass legislation and throw you in prison, Acts chapter 16, after beating you with sticks. You might be attacked in the public square. You might face threats to your physical person. Hear me, Paul says, the work of gospel proclamation is worth it. And so we need to receive this letter like the Thessalonians received it. We too are called to boldness in our God. We are called and to be bold because God has called us. You have heard the gospel. It has come to us. We have, by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, turned away from our idols. Hallelujah! We've put off the deeds of the flesh and are living now by the Spirit. Lives that are, are, are bent to serve the living God. To trusting that He's freed us from sin and death. Believing that in His resurrection, we are sure that He will deliver us from the wrath to come, as we read at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And that we are God's ambassadors, His sent ones. God is making His appeal to the world through us. And so we are called to cultivate this same faithfulness. And to borrow from just this passage, we too can be free from the praise of men, free from the love of comfort, and freely give of ourselves. Now remember, I made note of this earlier, and we're bringing it back here. The praise of men is an addiction that is deceptively subtle and deadly serious. Here's what I mean. Remember the example I, I used at the beginning. Why do you suppose that so many young kids, the highest aim for their lives is to play Minecraft or open unbox things on YouTube? Y'all know what I'm talking about. No offense to Minecraft, although I just don't understand the whole unboxing thing. Why do you suppose that is? Like, that's the highest aim. I think with the rise of social media, the idea of content creation, like everyone's a creator of content, we've seen this acceleration of of producing content and projecting images, carefully curating what we put out there, right? And then so much of that is not filled with the best ideas or the most thoughtful arguments or the most well-researched things, posts, The ones that that garner attention, that pick up steam, are the ones that land uh, at the right time of what's hot at the moment or that that can tag on the most hashtags and collect in a a lot of other tertiary things all in one post that can make use of what's hot or the trend that's hot right now or that can garner the most likes or little heart button pushes. Right? Now, before you accuse me of just being an old grump telling kids to get off my digital lawn... Hear me. I am not anti-media or marketing. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur in the room or you work at a business where your goal is to try to get people to see what you have for sale, go for it. Knock yourself out. But that is not the method of the gospel that Paul's highlighting here. 
And the dangers that can so easily seep into and distort our identity in Christ. It is deceptively subtle what the praise of men does to us. Because we like praise and affirmation. Like, it feels good when someone says, like, hey, good job. And, and maybe you had, like, it happens to me. Someone will say, hey, good job. And I'll have, like, a small little part of it. I'll be like, I'll take that. I'll stick that in my pocket. Devin, after the first service, came over to me and encouraged me and said, hey, good job this morning. I'm not trying to puff you up, though. Right? Like, we just got done with this sermon about not bowing to the praise of men, being free from that. And I'm like, thanks? Right? It feels good to be affirmed. It feels good to be liked. And I don't think we realize how much we crave it until we find ourselves wondering, like, man, I haven't heard much in a while. No one's told me they think I'm cool lately. Or that post that we posted, we we find ourselves going back to it kind of unconsciously just to see, has anyone else liked it since last time? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the message of the cross, the gospel message, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 18. There are those who want nothing to do with it. It's foolish, and you're foolish for believing it. That's the argument. And if your heart is driven by the praise of men, if we are not free from the praise of men, it doesn't take too many people calling me or calling you a fool before we start to question whether or not it's worth it we might find that giving up the gospel is easier than giving up the praise. That's why it's deadly. The second thing Paul says to be free, we can be free from is the love of comfort. If anything has been exposed in us in the last 18 to 24 months, it's a love of comfort. Love it. Love it. And love of money and love of comfort kind of tend to be two sides of the same coin. It might show up in our chasing hard after more and more and more, just trying to satisfy the wants. It might show up in a lack of generosity toward others. It might show up as we insulate ourselves, making sure just to keep to ourselves in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods, in our own subgroups. Self-quarantining, not out of a risk of a virus, that's not what I'm talking about, but out of risk of discomfort and inconvenience of not being able to control our own ordered lives. We keep people at bay because they would infringe on the nice little structure we've created for ourselves. And if we're pulled in by this love of comfort, friends, I I fear we will never be able to freely give of ourselves like we're reading about here. We don't, have t- we don't have time or space or capacity to be any- anyone else's mother or father or share with them our lives because that would just be too inconvenient and it would rub against the higher value in our lives of comfort and stability and safety. Because we'll just be too guarded. But when we read this, we, we read Paul's heart in verse 8. We, we desire this kind of boldness, right? We want our lives to count. We want to be able to do hard things. We want to stand at the end of our lives and look back at this life and this calling and this work that God has called us to, whatever that is for you, as a mom or as a dad, as a teacher, as a student, as a software engineer, as an insurance adjuster, as an athlete, as a pastor, as a neighbor. We want to say what God has called us to in this place is worth it. 
It was worth spending our time doing it the right way as he's called us to do it. The gospel shared with my kids or my family, with my coworkers, with the, the nurses in our hospital rooms, our neighbors when we're out mowing the lawn. It was worth it. The hits that we might take, not for being a jerk. Sometimes you just get take a hit because you're a jerk. Well, don't be a jerk. Sometimes we get take a hit because we're holding fast to the with biblical convictions that we're willing, like Paul, to, to open our arms and, and invite in at personal expense all those who are in the way, their way into the kingdom, and to say, it's worth it. And all of this, Paul says, is from God who has commissioned us and entrusted us with the gospel, verse 4, and who is calling us into his own kingdom and glory, verse 12. May we be a people who follow Jesus, who leads us in glorious example. Jesus, who took on the nature of a servant. Jesus, who humbled himself and who boldly proclaimed the kingdom of faith and repentance. Jesus, the one who has called us to himself into his own kingdom and his own glory. May we not fear and wonder if the life that Jesus has called us to is worth it. But I pray that we will find courage in knowing that he has indeed called us to himself and that by his grace, he is cultivating in us faithfulness to him, obedience to him for his glory, for his name, for the gospel to be known, and for our joy. That we will find all of this worth it because we too have boldness in our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you that you are indeed good. That you are at work expanding and advancing your kingdom. And that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light have taken us from the kingdom of death and darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. That through Jesus, we are now different because you've called us and approved us and you have now given us, you've entrusted us with this gospel in these frail, simple Jars, this life you've given us that we might display in whatever way you see fit that the power and the glory belong to you and not to us. I do pray you would give us boldness and courage where we are timid or unsure or weak. And that you, Holy Spirit, would be at work in us, cultivating the ground of our hearts to receive your word, that we might be faithful. Bring conviction and change and transformation and healing where it's necessary. And Holy Spirit, that you would grow this fruit of faithfulness in your people for your glory and for our good. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.